Last month, social media citizens criticized the Romance Writers of America for nominating a Christian-made historical romance novel for their 2021 Vivian Awards. We might be looking at a surprising plot twist when secular readers are not taking kindly to a book like this. How can Christian readers respond when secular critics fault Christian-made fiction, even a historical romance, for being too gritty and realistic? Welcome to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com in which we find and explore the best Christian-made fantasy, science fiction, and beyond, and apply the meanings of these stories to the real world that our author, Jesus Christ, calls us to serve. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, and I publish lorehaven.com. I'm also the co-author of our non-fiction book about fiction called The Pop Culture Parents. And I'm Zachary Russell, and I'm a lover, not a historian, nor a member of cancel culture, and this is episode 76, Why Did Secular Readers Try to Cancel a Christian Historical Romance Novel? And we're joined today by Parker J. Cole. What's up, Parker? Hey, guys. So excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we've been looking forward to having you for quite some time, and not just because you are the expert on topics like this. Uh, we are only hangers-on and gadflies, and we take an interest in this drama Mostly because, well, um, yeah, Zach said we like romance, but typically not just as dudes, but just because it's our personalities. Like we don't tend to read romance. Uh, We've uh, occasionally gotten into it if it's alongside a fantasy, but a novel that focuses on romance is outside of our expertise. So thank you so much for joining us. A real quick intro here. Uh, Parker J. Cole is an author, speaker, and radio show host with a fanatical obsession with the Lord. Star Trek, K-dramas, anime, romance books, old movies, speculative fiction, and knitting. An often on Mountain Dew and Marshmallows addict, she writes to fill the void the sugar left behind. To follow her on social media, visit her website at parkerjcole.com. We'll have those links in the show notes, as well as the link to her most recent article for Lorehaven, Paranormal Romance Can Reflect Man's Evil and God's Grace. She's written a lot of good stuff for Lorehaven, as well as the Speculative Faith blog, Parker, what's the last uh, novel that you just released in the romantic genre and what's coming up next for you? Well, I just released book 19 of the Blizzard Bride series called A Groom for Purity. The entire series is a mail order groom historical multiple author project and it is doing well. So Parker, I I know a little bit of K-drama and you may have seen this one. It's called Crash Landing on You. I have seen that one. I love it, but I do have my preferences for modern, I mean, um, historical K-dramas, so I Ah, like those better. I think they tell more interesting stories because the, the, the dynamics are really more restrictive. So how can you find love with, let's say, the king and his maiden or the king and the servant, or maybe the king has to hide off and go something. So I do prefer the historical K-dramas, but I did like Crash Landing on You, and it was a very, very good K-drama. Yeah, you know, I'm like Steven. I don't watch a lot of romantic kind of stuff, but Naomi and I watched it, and I really liked it. I I think it's because it's the combination of... So, Steven, it's about a a South Korean woman that accidentally goes into North Korea and then falls in love with this uh, army captain. So you've got oh, the I kind think of I've Romeo heard about Juliet. this one. Yeah, yeah North Korea being in the news. Wow, okay. Yeah, it's like Romeo and Juliet, and it's very, you know, geopolitically relevant. So for me, that was the interesting part. But, you know, the, every now and then, I, I dip into romantic kind of stories if 
if there's some kind of like speculative element, like the time traveler's wife, for example, I really like that movie or the lake house. Uh, maybe that's just cause Keanu Reeves is in and he's, he makes every movie kind of fun or, or goofy depending, but I'm um, glad to have you on Parker because you, you are much more attuned to this than, than either of us combined. So this is going to be a lot of fun today. Well, that's kind of our policy at lorehaven.com where we do try to focus on the fantasy, the science fiction and beyond, but we get into adjunct genres, I would say, like biblical fiction, for example. We have plenty to say about The Chosen and other films like that, uh, as well as romance, especially when it overlaps with the interests of the fantasy fan. Like, for example, uh, The Fantastical Truth, episode 68, Why Do Time Travelers Like to Romanticize the Past? Uh, we had author Jody Hedlund with us talking about our novel, Come Back to Me. It's time travel romance. It's history romance, but time travel. There is your in with the Lorehaven connection and our emphasis on the fantastical. Similarly, uh, we had uh, a few uh, few weeks ago, uh, Mike Duran on April, no, April, August. Sorry. Similarly, a few weeks ago on August the 6th, uh, we had Mike Duran writing an article for the site after a, a controversy that frames this episode. His article was called Christian publisher Bethany House defends at love's command from outraged critics. Uh, in that article, he had, of course, uh, his perspective on this controversy that we mentioned at the top of the show, uh, where there was a nomination of this historical romance novel at love's command for uh, an award. I believe it was an inspirational category or something like that. Uh, and then there was a there's well, Parker, actually tell you what, um, you've got the article in front of you. Uh, would you like to read the relevant portion of this article uh, before we then uh, go to our sponsor, talk about our concessions for this episode, and then plunge deep into uh, the controversy surrounding this? Well, certainly. I would love to do that. Mike Durant's article is entitled, as Steve said, Christian publisher Bethany House defends at love's command from outraged critics. It's not often critics accuse a Christian historical romance novel of racism and glamorizing genocide, yet a vocal contingent of romance fans leveled these charges while demanding the Romance Writers of America, RWA, rescind its 2021 Vivian Award to Christian historical fiction novelist Karen Whitmire for her novel At Love's Command. RWA voters awarded At Love's Command in the category of romance with religious or spiritual elements. Days later, the association stripped Whitmire's book of its award. The controversy concerned the male lead, a Calvary man who participated in the Wounded Knee Massacre of Native American women and children, and his later search for redemption. At Love's Command portrays the protagonist as anguished about his actions and seeking atonement. Back in the real world, the mob offers no such forgiveness. Readers largely criticized the book for portraying a hero participating in genocide of indigenous people. They called this repugnant. Some saw the book's publication as evidence of deeply embedded white supremacy. One reader felt prompted to continue her boycott against all white authors, while many others pledged to cancel membership with the RWA. One critic quipped, Next up, romanticizing Auschwitz. Another said, real Christians do not excuse, promote, or approve of racism and genocide. In fact, the very idea of atonement for such egregious sins torqued the Twitterati. Characters who participate in genocide cannot be redeemed, another critic said. That's a direct quote. And that's some very interesting content there. This episode is going to be fun. I want to grab a quick uh, snack from the concession stand, although snack seems too small a word to describe my agreement with the quote. 
that Parker just read from Mike's article, it is true. Real Christians do not excuse, promote, or approve of racism and genocide. We shouldn't have to disclaim that, but there it is. And on that rather heavy note, uh, we're going to go real quick to our sponsor once again for this episode, which is Revel Books with James R. Hannibal's spy suspense thriller, The Paris Betrayal. Here's the book description. After an intelligence operation in Rome goes sideways, Ben Calix returns to Paris to find his perfectly ordered world turned upside down. A hitman ambushes him at his flat. French SWAT tries to hem him in. This is a severance. The director has kicked him out into the cold, but why? To find answers, Ben must seek the sniper who tried to kill him, the spy master who trained him, the doctor who once saved his life, and the teammate who killed the woman he loved. And in the midst of this search, scouring Europe for his contacts, he must still try to stop a world-altering attack. That's the description in this book. It also carries an endorsement from Simon Gervais, the best-selling author of Hunt Them Down, who praises... Hannibal once again displays his dazzling prose and ability to keep even the more experienced readers guessing. Another gripping, high-octane book from one of the best thriller writers in the business. That's the endorsement from Simon Gervais. You can find out more about The Paris Betrayal in the show notes for this episode, episode 76 at lorehaven.com slash podcast. Also, see our podcast archives for our interview with James R. Hannibal, talking about his, uh, his game, Light Raiders, uh, formerly to be formerly known as Dragon Raid. And from there, let's go to our concession stand proper. This one's a doozy. I'll try to get through it quickly, and we'll try not to get too full of concessions and carbonated beverages here. Zach's in my concession is that we have not read the book at Love's Command. That's a very important concession. So we, like some of the critics, may not fully understand what's in it. But Parker has started to read the book, and she knows more about what's actually in there. Second concession, if the book offered no redemption for this person who committed all these terrible sins, we might share some criticism of that story because Christians do not believe that those sins go unpunished. But apparently the book does offer a redemptive storyline, and that's what some of the critics say they don't like. There is no redemption for this kind of sin. I think Christians can disagree with that very strongly in the gospel. Also, we must focus on the moral and imaginations issues here, I'm not just calling this politics or saying, well, that's just political and we have nothing to do with that. No, Christians need to engage that stuff too. But in fact, this issue isn't about politics. That is public policy issues. This is people stuff. Uh, this is also religious stuff. So we assume this is a religious and moral conflict over those kinds of issues. This is not just neutral criticism versus those religious people. Uh, anybody who is getting into this issue is trying to push or persuade based on religious beliefs, and that's fine, but that means we're all on the same turf. We're all, in a sense, lobbying for application of religious beliefs in the public square. Everybody has to play by those rules then, by the religious rules, which includes us, all biblical Christians here in this podcast. Finally, as I mentioned before, this is a genre bend. This isn't a fantasy book proper. There's no dragons, there's no spaceships, there's no monsters. Still, as far as we know, this is a Christian neighbor. I don't know the author here of this book, uh, Karen Whitmeyer. We wouldn't have her, by the way, on the show, even if we had uh, tried to reach out to her. I think in this case, <laughs> if you're in this kind of controversy, it's best for an author to lay low. Uh, that's why Parker is here, and that's why we're here. For whatever reason, we feel like we don't need to lay low. Uh, we got a little bit of a distance from this, so we feel like we can look at it from hopefully a biblical perspective, uh, exploring not only the controversy from that gospel worldview, uh, but the whole genre of romance and history and what people should expect from that. Uh, Parker and Zach, do you have anything else to add to the concession stand uh, now that we've uh, piled up the packages and the wrappers are filling up the trash can? 
Well, I keep thinking about this word glamorizing. It would certainly be wrong for a book to glamorize some kind of horrible sin, especially like uh, done on a massive scale. Like I, I would not want to read a book like that. Uh, I would not want to celebrate a book like that that was encouraging people to sin or sort of overlooking sin because sin is a serious thing. I mean, it, what, what, is, what is the quote from Tim Keller that the, the gospel is the bad news that your, your sin is a lot worse than you thought, but it's also the good news that you're more loved than you could believe because Jesus died for those sins, but it took the death of Jesus to pay for those sins. You know, is that really what this book does? Is it truly glamorizing this sin or is it simply portraying it, including it in the context of a different story that perhaps was missed by the critics? And so that's, I'm glad to have Parker on because yeah, I haven't read it either. So I, I don't know whether this book fits the, the charge of glamorizing sin. Yeah, and we'll keep people listening to get the answer to that question because first I'd, I'd like to explore just the purpose in the gospel worldview of romance or historical romance. Um, but before that, Parker, do you have any other quick concessions or disclaimers before we plunge into the depths of that discussion? Well, my only concession I would add to the wrappers here as well as a, is that an orange peel I see? Is that <laughs> the idea that critics would say genocide cannot be forgiven really shows just how our Lord is so much bigger than our sins. Amen. And it's interesting that someone would say that. This does not preclude that there are consequences for your actions. I think sometimes people think Amen. forgiveness is doesn't have any consequences associated with it. That's not the case. However, the fact that someone would say you cannot be forgiven for that lets me know they don't quite understand what forgiveness is and why God demands, first of all, that we forgive each other and why he commands us to forgive. And that is a part of the story in Karen Whitmire's book that comes out as you continue to read the story. It's not that he can do anything for what he participated in, the main hero. Only redemption came from the Lord. And that is the whole point of this particular arc, is that it has to show a redemptive story arc within a religious category. So this is what is important when we make this discussion about this book. Amen. Uh, Christ forgave the thief on the cross who is repentant at the very last minute or the last few hours of both of their lives. In this case, Christ's human life. Uh, that man will be resurrected in the future. Uh, he is forgiven of his sins to this day. We presume he is in heaven. Jesus said he would be in heaven this day. Christ said, you will be with me in paradise. That was a promise. So we know he's in heaven, uh, but the thief on the cross still had to die. Uh, that was part of his storyline. There was still a consequence for whatever he had done, and he seemed to understand that, which, by the way, was part of his repentance. Uh, he didn't get forgiven and then get taken down from the cross and patched up by the Roman guards. He still had to die. So as you said, Parker, there's still consequences for our evils, even if God forgives us. Uh, that's an important thing to note, and that's why that makes this a gospel issue. Uh, this isn't a political issue. This isn't even really about canceling. It's about how people understand the purpose of fiction in potentially illustrating these redemptive story arcs, even in a book like a historical romance book. And as I mentioned, we'll, we'll get to the specifics of this novel in a moment. But 
First off, because Zach and I are not romantic or historical fiction fans, really, uh, how can, I'm asking you this, Parker, how can Christian fans best engage uh, the purpose of romantic fiction? Like, what is, what is the purpose of these kinds of stories for Christians and others? How do we see their benefits uh, as part of our discipleship and our recreation in Christ? One thing Christians should realize is God is a romantic. In the Bible, one of the best romance stories is the story of Ruth. Why would the Lord include four chapters of this woman and this man? Why would he do that? He could have put any other story in there. We would have, we would have known because <laughs> he's the one who brought all together. Why would he do that? It's to let us know that he hears the cries of the lonely heart. He hears the cries of those of us who are still waiting earnestly for who our mates will be. He is a romantic. He's crazy. If I could use a vernacular, he's crazy in love with us. And when people realize just how much the Lord loves us, that what he did is spurned and and caused by love. Why are we so critical of romance in general? A lot of Christians tend to think of romance as sex books. And it is true, and I've said this on a couple of articles on Speculative Faith, it is true that their romance, some romance does have, you know, sexual content in there. Um, but it's not about that. Romance is the journey of a couple's path to togetherness. And I want to use you two gentlemen. You know how you met your wives. You know what that looked like. And I know you must have had some nervousness, like, oh my gosh, what she's going to say. I hope I see her today. Oh, she looks great. I love that. Wow. I'm going to kiss her. You know, all those little things that just make our heart flutter. Why do you think we have these feelings? God could have made us any way. We would not have known the difference, but he gave us these responses, these thoughts and emotions. Are they to be um, submerged or are they to be expressed in the content or in the way that the Lord wants us to express them in the context of marriage, love, and fidelity? So that's why Christians need to understand the romance industry in general. Once you stop seeing it as just sex books, and I do that a lot because it's sex books. Like, it's not just <laughs> sex books. It's about the journeys, the path of the couple. So that's one thing to know. Uh, the other thing is that we have to reach out in love. If you don't know how to love, how can you reach out in love? Love is about sacrifice, but it's also about communicating. It's about being corrective when you need to be corrected. So that's why people need to understand the deeper meanings that go on behind a romance. So I hope that answers the question, Steve and Zach. Let me know if I just went off into the, no, the deep end. I think end. that's exactly the answer. The only thing I would add is that you, you mentioned that God is a romantic. I mean, it goes straight back to I mean, I like going back to Genesis to explain the origins of a lot of things, including the impulse to create and enjoy stories in the first place, going back to the cultural mandate of Genesis 128. Just one chapter later, you have an expansion of the sixth day of creation, uh, not an additional uh, narrative there, uh, but uh, kind of telescoping in on God creating male and female in his image in Genesis 1. And then you open up, you get this little uh, footnote here, kind of an expansion in the first part of Genesis 2, where God uh, sees that uh, the only thing that Adam needs is a helper fit for him. Uh, it's the only thing, in a sense, that's wrong or lacking in this otherwise perfect creation that God has made up till the early part of day six. So God puts Adam to sleep, uh, draws a rib from his side, and from that rib creates uh, a woman 
Uh, and this is the first human love story in all of scripture. Uh, you have this beautiful poetic moment where Adam names Eve and he says, you know, she came from my side. Uh, she was taken out of man. Uh, and then the author of Genesis, inspired by God, gives the commentary that for this reason, uh, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with the woman and the two will become one flesh. And it's a beautiful picture of the same kind of romance that obviously, as we learn later, Christ has with his church. Uh, stories that celebrate that can be very good stories, very uniquely Christ-exalting stories. And we like to say on Fantastical Truth that fantasy stories have a unique role uh, to explore themes that other genres simply can't. Uh, I would turn that back on us. Romantic stories have a unique role to pursue themes that other types of stories simply can't. You know, military suspense can't explore this kind of theme that is uh, at the very heart of the gospel. Christ's love for the church. Uh, and thus also on the love between a man and a woman, this uniquely uh, romantic covenantal love uh, that turns out plot twist, according to the Apostle Paul, all along uh, was about Christ and his church. Kind of a kind of a big Easter egg there in uh, in terms of God plotting out his gospel narrative. So we also get, though, we also get some, you know, some issues that arise uh, with romantic fiction. You've already alluded to some of those. Uh, some of the some of the sex issues, you know, just just using romance as a justification for pornographic material. Uh, but Parker, you've also mentioned kind of a bigger issue uh, that is at the heart of this this issue with the at love's command controversy. It turns out, uh, as you've mentioned, that it's not only certain types of people who fall in love, and yet some romantic fiction, just for whatever reasons that you can go into. Uh, have emphasized certain types of people who fall in love and then leave of, of people wondering, other types of readers wondering, wait a minute, well, we fall in love too. Like, uh, do you want to go into that and kind of explain some of the bigger issues behind, uh, frankly, romance novels that uh, emphasize white leads? Let's just come out and say it. You know, persons of pallor tend to get on the covers a lot more in the past. Uh, what have been some of the issues with that? Well, this really becomes an important part of this topic is understanding the history of romance, particularly modern romance. I won't go into some of the older ones, but like modern romance, what had happened, there's this term called white gaze, meaning that romance was filtered through the Western European view of everything. So you always had a white couple that you followed in romance. Now, I love romance of whoever. I love romance. But what I didn't realize until I got older, and it was something that you're not quite conscious of unless someone actually brings it out to you. What about the African-American people who fall in love? What about the Chinese people who fall in love? What about the Indian people who fall in love? What about all these other people who fall in love? And what had happened, I was invited to a local chapter of RWA, which is Romance Writers of America here in Detroit. I was invited there and they wanted to get the person of color or author of color called AOC. They wanted to get our opinions on the industry as a whole. Why won't some of these AOC authors join the association? This is a couple of years ago. And we were talking about romance and why we love romance. And one of the girls, she's actually one of the um, authors who, the black authors who was there, she's an erotic author. But me and her, we talk, we have a good time talking. She's, she's a hoot. We were talking and she said, I grew up, didn't know that black people fell in love because she never read about it. She only read about white people falling in love. Wow. Even the descriptions in the book, there's a lot of time 
spent on descriptions, you know, big, broad shoulders. Everyone, you know, we all know that, but uh, her skin was like peaches and cream. She had a rosy complexion, she had pale skin like porcelain, but you never heard she had skin like cinnamon or she had skin like chestnuts or like warm um, honey. You don't hear those type of darker terms, if you will. Or if you did, it was lightly tan, things of that nature. So there is a history behind this that has to be addressed. And so why do I mention this? This is the history that leads to what happened with this book and what's going on with that. So you have this white gaze, if you will. Now people are talking about, we need to have more diverse stories. That was necessary. Of interest to me, about a couple of months ago, someone said, well, there aren't a lot of Black authors. And I remember looking at the person who said this, like, where are you getting that from? And it's because of this inoculation, if you will, because people tend to read what they want to read. And that's fine. If you want to read dragon stories, go right ahead. Read your dragon stories. If you want to read uh, military sci-fi, go right ahead. You tend to read what you'd like to read. But they have become so inoculated. They didn't think, oh, black people don't write or black people don't read. That was another one I heard. That was the craziest thing. Black wow. people don't mm-hmm. read. And I said, where are you getting that from? <laughs> you know, and I'm thinking all of my friends read. You know? <laughs> so where are you getting that from? So it's this, this inoculation this, that, that also adds to it. So let's talk about RWA. RWA is an association of romance writers, editors, publishers, and it's been around for a long time. So in 2019, RWA was destroyed from the inside out via catfight on Twitter. I won't go into all the particulars. You can literally look it up. It's because always one thing about Twitter. It's always Twitter. <laughs> right up there. Tw- it's it's just a yeah. lineup. Yes. Oh, gosh. It was. I followed it. I followed it very extensively because I'm in the romance industry. So this is going back and two so, years ago. So this is a two-year-old two controversy that, that's behind the controversy today. It's never yes. about the controversy right in front of you. There's something else that went on that you don't know about. And the fight that or the battle going on right now is actually about this thing that took place before. Well, it's not that it's still going on. It's it's the upheaval from that that led yeah, to this. Yeah, the fallout. Yeah. The fallout, if you will. So what happened, uh, two women got into it. A Chinese author accused a white author of representing Chinese characters incorrectly in her book. You can go more into it. It's all online. You can go more into it. And so there's this back and forth between them. So the white author went, reached out to RWA and said, hey, you need to get rid of her. She's affecting my business, blah, blah, blah. And RWA, where they made their mistake as a, someone from the outside looking in, they made their mistake by getting involved into this confrontation between these two authors. They got involved. They um, kicked out the Chinese author. This led to internet weapons of mass destruction, bombs exploding, (laughs) uh, RWA experience, massive backlash. They lost sponsors, membership. People were just all over the place. And people on the outside who are not in Romance Landia, which is the romance industry who are not there they were laughing i said no you really need to watch what happens in romance landia because what happens in romance landia is going to trickle down to other genres too we're just very vocal about it because yeah, romance is one of the biggest genres right yeah it's so one of the biggest it, genres it's, out it there. really does shape the rest of the industry it really does and and women talk most it's mostly women Women talk. <laughs> We're going to talk and talk. <laughs> We're going to talk about it. Forgive me for being stereotypical. We're going to talk about it. So all this happened. It forced the RWA leadership to resign. Every single one of them resigned. Oh, wow. They discovered that there was mismanagement. Yeah. Wow. yeah. 
mismanagement, there was favoritism, there were deliberate things that were happening. They had this audit from the this uh, audit company from the outside do an audit on the records of RWA. I read the 60-page report. I mean, it was kaplooey. So they lost sponsors. So 2020 RWA, they canceled the awards, everything. So imagine just debris all over the place. Wow. So now RWA is rising from the ashes. It's rising from the ashes now. So they, um, one of the awards, the Reader Awards, they they um, they phase that out and they create the Vivian Award. So this is the first year after all this upheaval. Okay. So the backdrop of always is white gaze, coupled with one of the biggest associations in the industry. They they didn't show they I won't say racism, but they did have prejudices and stereotypes that they kept in. So I won't I don't want to say racism, but they kept it focused on white authors and whatever. So all this is happening. Now you have 2021. RWA is a new organization, new people, new diverse board members, everything you can think of. They're revamping everything. Now you have this book at Love's Command. Their RWA is coming out of this. They're trying to go forward. They have more uh, people of color, uh, authors of color, not just African-Americans, but different ethnic groups. The judges were told to watch a 45-minute video about diversity. And so they did all that. So now you have Love's Command, Christian romance, historical romance. Beginning of the book has this white guy killing indigenous people. Right at the beginning. That's the hook. Right at the beginning. Wow. Okay. Okay. That's a hook for you. See, so here's all this history, all this stuff happening. And RWA, it went through, I think, 13 judges. So they all read it. They enjoyed it. But someone said, I can't believe that they would call this. But they only read the first prologue. It's the, it's the prologue. Mm, okay. Oh, they dear. only read mm. that part. I'm pretty sure they only read that part. And someone got on Twitter. I don't know who it was. Uh, they got on Twitter, started complaining about it. And then that's how it ended up in hot water. Next thing you know, RWA rescinded the award because they just got out of a massive explosion. Yeah. Okay. They just got out of it. Okay. And then they, they went control. on this. Basically. Yeah. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying, right, but yeah. this is we were the just history. describing the facts right now. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. This is the history. And so when they did that, RWA said they don't want to, you know, show this. But when you look at the book at the end of the prologue, like right at the end of the prologue, he, I think he got hit in the head or something and he wakes up. He's like, oh my gosh, we just, we just participated in a massacre. Now what's interesting though, and that's something the book goes into his own family have been, uh, killed by um, Native Americans in the book himself, which kind of led to his own problems with it. And one thing that I think people forget is that hurt people hurt people. Yes, so if yes. you've been hurt by someone, chances are you're going to hurt someone else. Okay. But that wasn't taken into consideration. All they have is quote unquote white gays. This white guy is killing indigenous people. And how dare we call this a romantic hero that we love? Was it what people were saying? No, it was not that. This guy is nothing like that. As you read the book, he is extremely remorseful for what he did. So he's trying to make up for it by being a mercenary to the innocent. So people who are being hurt, he doesn't even kill the people he goes after. Like he went after some wrestlers. He doesn't kill them. He maims them because he swore I would never kill anyone again because of what had happened at Wounded Knee. So that's like the gist of the story. And then he meets the doctor. The doctor's, of course, this very smart woman because her name is Dr. Joe. And he thinks he's a, a big portly guy. It's a woman, beautiful, all that stuff, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so we get the, the, the romantic tropes of the story. But 
I can understand why some readers who read it and were aware of this were like, this is not right. I can understand why. And that's why, um, and this is no, um, how do I say this? This is not a critique against Mike, but Mike only came from one aspect of the story. And when I read this article, I said, there's a wider picture here. Whether it's wrong or right, it's not the case. It's the facts behind it. So that's my opinion of what happened. Right. It seems to me that there's two different uh, limited bandages here. Uh, and, and that's why we're trying to get as many perspectives as possible. Uh, the one is, uh, I would say a little bit more of Mike's article is, is framing this in the perspective of the cancel culture. There's a bunch of people who want to cancel a book because they feel that it is immoral and doesn't deserve to be exposed in polite society. And then in addition to the misunderstandings of the story of the book, you know, whether or not it promotes genocide or racism or any of those things, you do have people, I would say, hurt people who are also hurting people. It's not an excuse, but it is a reason who will say things like, I don't care if this character gets redeemed or not. You know, that must not be allowed. Well, now you've got a gospel problem. Now you've got a person with a very limited understanding of sin and reconciliation and forgiveness, not only in the divine sense, but in the uh, human sense there. So that's one narrow perspective is just framing that an issue of cancel culture versus freedom, you know. And the other uh, limited perspective that you mentioned uh, is is looking at it just from the perspective of what's going on uh, with this this issue with romance novels before, like only focusing on particular types of characters, you know, who would be described in terms of how pale they are, you know, uh, is, is she going out in the fields and working and you know, getting a tan or is she beautiful because she gets to stay inside and read and fan herself all day? You know, maybe I'm bringing my own stereotypes to it as well, but that's not the only frame here, you know, that's shaping our understanding of these kinds of stories. You know, the Christian comes at this trying to, or at least I think we should come at this, trying to understand everybody's perspective. Like, no, we're not coming at it from mustn't judge mustn't judge, you know, everybody's just sensitive, you know, let's all just try to get along. Like, I think we can make some discerning statements here, but maybe not limited to either the, oh, it's all just a bunch of, you know, woke cancel culture any more than we would limit it to, oh, it's just a bunch of people trying to excuse racism in fiction. And that's one thing she didn't do. As you read the story, he's feeling remorse, even as he's going through this incident. As he's going through this incident, like he's trying to protect himself and all this other stuff is happening. He feels remorse. He's feeling icky about it. So he's not just going, yeah, take out all the Indians. Well, no, he's not doing that. He's feeling remorse. So even at the beginning of the story, this is happening. And people are, were objecting to the fact that he was killing it. But this is what really happened. See, that's the problem. This is history. Wounded Knee is not a fake thing that happened. This really happened. There were a lot of massacres that were done against Native Americans back in the day. And one thing that this book does, the guy, even as he's going through these actions, he feels icky while this is all happening. So she's presenting this character, even though he's doing his job, he doesn't feel right about it. And then when he he gets uh, knocked out or something, when he wakes up, he realized that he had participated in a massacre and he is devastated by this. So for some of the critics to say, oh, he's, we're just glorifying genocide. She, this book was not glorifying genocide. He was doing his job like people in war do. They do their job, but they don't often leave going, yeah, we took out the enemy. There's often a lot of PTSD that is involved. That's what he experiences too, is PTSD. They would not have caught it back then. So the book does not make this guy this hero who 
glorifies in genocide. And that's why I was a little curious if people actually read the book, had they read the prologue, because unless they read something I'm not reading, I don't get that as I read it. He's remorseful, even as he's doing this, he's not feeling right, he's doing his job, he's in war, he's being attacked, this happened. Um, that's, that's what I see. And then throughout the book, uh, he, this thing constantly haunts him and it makes him frame his decision. So he's not glorifying what happened, which is that um, toward the book, he becomes a mercenary, but he defends the innocent and the weak because he's trying to atone for what happened, a wounded knee. And then he meets the girl and that's where the romance part comes in at. But she is a woman who heals. He's a man who has a life of violence. So there's their conflict there. And she says, there's no way we could ever be in a relationship, if you will, even though right now the, what I've gotten to is just a flirtation part of the story. But he realizes that too. She's very well-educated. She uses big words to get at him. He's just a regular old soldier, you know, and uh, his mercenaries includes this Buffalo soldier. As you know, Buffalo soldiers were the black soldiers um, during the time period. And uh, he shows complete respect to him, but she doesn't hide the fact that as a, a Buffalo soldier, he has to worry about being in Texas, being, you know, not worry about he's coming to enemy. So she doesn't whitewash anything. She just puts it into a narrative. Is it right deep down in your face? No, but it's there. So in my opinion, the, the book is not glorifying genocide. It's not glorifying racism. It's not glorifying anything that the critics are saying. Well, and you know, maybe this is a bit of a spoiler, but from some of the reviews I read about this book and the whole controversy, a lot of it centered on, well, are you saying then that, you know, just by being sorry and trying to be nice to other people, you can make up for a horrific sin. And I don't think the book, you know, again, I haven't read it, but from what I've read of people talking about it, I don't think the book makes that point either that ultimately only only in Christ can we be forgiven. We we can't atone for our own sins, and maybe we can, you know, do go a different direction in our life and try to make other people's lives better. But that's not going to erase our sins. Only Christ's blood takes away the eternal consequence. And yeah, there might still be human consequences to our sin. And so I I think that is the direction the book goes. So this really comes down to: Is there such a thing as an unforgivable sin? Because that that's sort of what this seems to center on, you know, can someone be so far gone that the rest of their life doesn't matter, that there's, there's, there's nothing good anymore in their life. But, you know, since these are fictional characters, even though this is a historically, uh, historical event, really it's about, we want the villain to get justice in a story. Like we, we want to see, you know, evil vanquished, but then how do you do that when the evil is inside the main character? <laughs> you know, you don't want to see the main character that you're cheering for. You don't want to see him vanquished. And so then it's a very different story rather than the villain getting his comeuppance. Uh, you know, it's about the villain being redeemed and redemption is a very, you know, it's a scandalous idea in a lot of ways. It It is not the default state of what we want to see in the world. We want to see justice like that hammer slam down on the, on the bad guys. You know, because this is a historical event, I think there's also that tension between we're trying to be historically accurate. Any any kind of film or book, you know, you can always see people debating how accurate was the history. 
Yeah, the real life people always had worse teeth. For example, yeah, you know, this, right, you know exactly. the hairstyles in a period drama, you know, supposedly Didn't set in makeup. the Regency period. <laughs> the hairstyles, you know, if they made it in the 1990s, is going to look like the 1990s. It's just something yeah. you can't avoid. Yeah. So there's always, you know, those things that people debate. Um, I think there's a website Naomi goes to all the time. It's like Hollywood or history or Hollywood versus history. But then you've also got these modern sensitivities and. I don't think all of those modern sensitivities are bad, by the way. Maybe that's my concession stand. You know, Parker, as you're talking about, basically what you're describing earlier is kind of the lack of representation. It's like, hey, what about a character like me? And I can relate to that. I mean, I'm a Southerner. I'm a Texan. I'm like, what, a fourth or fifth generation Texan? And I hate how Texans are portrayed in most films and stories. We look like a bunch of ignorant rednecks. And, you know, Stephen pokes fun at me all the time for how I say nuclear. Uh, which which I just wear as a badge of honor now. It's not correct. <laughs> <laughs> it's not correct. Persons of class and education know to say nuclear. Actually, we don't <laughs> say it at all. <laughs> yeah. So you know all the uh, all the ways that George W. Bush got made fun of. I'm like, hey man, he he's a Texan. That's that's awesome. We got a Texan in the White House. So he was doing I it totally, on purpose too. I, I'm pretty oh, sure. Oh yeah, he he's was. trolling everyone. So, you know, I, I get wanting to see people that are like you and, and have similar experiences of you and, and not just look like you, but have that same culture that you're from. Uh, I, I think it's totally fine to um, include other people that feel like they've been left out. I'm, I'm very much an, an includer of a person. I think where it goes sideways is when you mentioned favoritism, Parker, and how sometimes favoritism gets answered with more favoritism. You know, and that can be a problem. And it, and I feel like that's may of what has been at the core of this is there is like you said, there's all that history and they're like, you know what? We have favored one group of writers and readers at the expense of others. And it looks like we've just done that again. So we're going to go the other way and favor another group of readers without really critically analyzing this. And, and just to kind of this knee jerk reaction, like, oh no, we don't want to exclude those people. We'll just exclude this book and it's all on Twitter. So everything's happening at at light speed. So that's part of the problem, I think, too. I think something that we also need to recognize, this is just my opinion. If I have it wrong, I am totally okay with that. But I also have to say that people are forgetting that people are complex, that we do not fit into boxes. You can have really evil people do a good thing. And you can have really good people, if you will, do evil things. And it happens every single day. Or to put it more succinctly, Hitler had friends, Mother Teresa had enemies. Okay, Mm. so (laughs) guess what? That's the complexity of human nature. And so I think sometimes we're so quick to, because of the sensitivity, which is, I don't want to throw it all out. I don't want to throw it all out. Amen. But I understand why some of the critics were feeling that way. Especially with RWA, RWA, when I, like I said, we're talking about a debris field. They are literally trying to come back up and recover from that. So when they get the first whiff of this quote unquote scandal, if you will, boom, we got to we got to make a decision. I'm not on the board. I don't know what these people think about, you know, I could be just talking out of the uh, other side of my mouth. It's fine. But at the same time. I understood where they come from. Did I necessarily agree with it? Because I'm reading the book and I'm reading the book. I'm on chapter 12 now. And right now it's been a largely the romance part, the romance part of it. And I'm pretty sure toward the end, it'll take me about a couple hours to finish it. The 
toward the end, we're going to see his bigger arc, his story, the emotional um, part of the story. And then we'll get to, you know, happily ever after. We'll get to the redemption part. But the good thing that you asked, Zach, which I think deserves some talking about, is it, oh, do we just make him sorry? Well, you can always be sorry. We can all be sorry, be for real, totally sorry. But there are consequences for our actions. I think the critics are thinking, well, he just said he was sorry. He doesn't get any consequences. Not every consequence is external. Some mm-hmm. stuff is internal, just in yeah. general. Like some people may have gotten away with things, and we know that. But God is ultimately the judge, and he doesn't forget anything. But when we have the blood of Christ on us, he says, as far as east is from the west i'll throw your sins away from you in this culture they want to keep at it for something you did 10 years ago 30 years ago 40 years ago you made these comments and therefore that is your person as if we don't if i could use the term evolve over time like we don't evolve like the person i was in my 20s i'm not the same person now in my 40s the person i was a year ago it's not the same person i was this year so to constantly keep bringing stuff up that happened is that really fair? If you are changing, constantly change, you're not a stagnant person. You know, so that's another aspect of this too. He is changing through the course of the story. When, as he realizes, he cannot atone for it by doing this, by, by becoming a mercenary, protecting the innocent and the weak, he has to get that atonement from Christ. And that's something he realizes toward the end. I think this is what leads into our next big issue here is how can Christians engage this latest controversy? We've already crossed over into it, bringing the gospel to bear and showing how the gospel answers these questions of sin and wrath and punishment. I see so many people trying to get their wrath from somewhere else, whether it's the mob or whether it's political policy. They don't understand that legitimate wrath comes from God alone. And unfortunately, some churches, I don't say the church, Zach knows this, y'all know this, I don't say the church needs to do a better job at stop universalizing it. You're talking about your church, maybe not my church. My church didn't do this, but in general, a lot of Christian culture has tended to dismiss or minimize, or we don't talk about that, the topic of God's wrath. Uh, We want to act like everybody already knows that God is wrathful. They've been through enough anger and punishment. Thank you very much. And all we need to do as the church, as our evangelists, as our seeker-friendly sermons is come along and say, no, God is love. God is love. He really loves you, which is true, which is true. Like you said earlier about Mike's article, uh, uh, Parker, like it's, it's true, but there's more to say. God is love, but he is also holiness. And if we are dismissing one of his attributes in favor of the other, first, that's not being faithful to the whole word of God and the entirety of the gospel that we need to proclaim. But secondly, we're going to be saying that so much that then that's all that people hear, especially in the next generation. You walk up to you know maybe uh, XYZ in 1965 and say, God really loves you. Well, maybe they've grown up all their lives hearing God hates me. God, you know, God doesn't want me. And they'll receive that message with eagerness. Oh, wow. God actually loves me. Okay, but try that again 20, 30, 40 years later. You walk up to somebody and earnestly say, God loves you. And they go, well, of course. And also, is there even a God? Or how could God, uh, why, why do you think I need to hear that God loves me? Like, God doesn't love what I do. Therefore, I don't love God. Uh, the same strategy doesn't work. You're minimizing wrath. But you can't get rid of that in culture. People have to get it from somewhere because they have 
gospel reflections in their hearts or heard from stories or caught wind from somewhere, you've got to get that wrath from somewhere. So if you're not going to get it from an understanding of God as revealed in the Bible, then where are you going to get it? You're going to get it from the mob. You've got to get it from assumed morality, like the Twitter morality. And then if you see someone in real life or in a story who seems to be doing something terrible and then just getting away with it because they feel sorry, surely in the legitimate sense, that raises the objection. Well, but someone needs to be punished for that. Uh, someone needs to pay the price for that. And I don't see any other sacrificial lambs or scapegoats around here because that's not in my religion. So the only person to blame is that character or that author. And then maybe just to be fair, uh, we ought to dismiss or fire everybody who even gave that book or that character a smile. Uh, just to be very clear, you know, sin demands the penalty. The Christian looks at this and says, yes, sin does demand the penalty. We're not saying that you can just change and the sin isn't the sin anymore because the passage of time wipes all debts. We don't believe that. What we believe in is Christ. Christ will either avenge the evil. God is the avenger. He will not let anyone get away with their sin, whether it's racism or bigotry or the simple acceptable sins. Uh, he is postponing his judgment, giving people time to repent, but at some point their time will be up. There is a thing called hell, and unfortunately for us, but in vindication of God's holiness, uh, hell is necessary. God must punish the wicked, or he will forgive that person if they repent and put their trust in Christ thanks to Christ's suffering on the cross. The evil does not go unpunished. God vindicates his holiness, it says in the book of Romans. Uh, God must prove and show that he is absolutely righteous. And I think that that's something that people miss, uh, whether they're trying to excuse a novel or a nonfiction teaching or a political beef or whatever, because, well, that person's not evil anymore, they've changed, uh, or they're trying to demand that that person suffer as close to an eternity as possible uh, at the hands of the Twitter mob with their, with their pitchforks and their uh, best attempts at hellfire. I need to add to that because I think you said some very powerful things there. But you mentioned about how people are used to hearing God as love. And then the adjoiner, if you will, is, well, does God even exist? Do I even care that God loves me? But something I have been simmering on for the last several weeks is in Hebrews, where he said, for our God is a consuming fire. And when you really think about the imagery that comes to mind, what does fire do? Fire destroys. It cleans out. It fumigates. It, le it leaves a path of destruction, if you will. And why would Paul, if, if it was Paul, you know, why would that person say God is a, for our God is a consuming fire? What does that mean? So we say God is love. God is holy. What does it mean when we say our God is a consuming fire? Mm. And that really puts you into an idea of what of how much bigger God is than what we even understand. We use these terms to try to understand it, to try to apprehend his nature, but we're limited in our understanding of him. So people could say, like the one quote said, that you cannot forgive genocide. That means that you're saying that your sense of justice is better than God's sense of justice. Your mm. sense of mercy is better than God's sense of mercy. Your sense of this needs to be atoned for in this manner is better than God's atonement. But you are limited in so many ways that you cannot comprehend, okay? 
So what does God mean? What did he mean? We said for our God is a consuming fire. I've been literally simmering on that for a while. And I thought about the forest fires that happened in California earlier. Um, was it last year or this year? Um, and, oh, they're still going and, on now. It yeah, seems California on. is always on fire yeah. somewhere. Yeah. And then Australia and then all these other places. What does fire do? Do you see what I'm saying? So it's like, yes, we say God is love. We agree with that. But what does our God's a consuming fire? These makes us know that God's nature is so much bigger than ours. So it's bigger than ours. So to simply say God is love and therefore all he wants us to do is be loving and peaceful. What was this aspect about then? And that's something I've been sitting around for a long time. I don't say I have an answer per se. But it's just something that's been consuming me, if you will, burning me up, if you will. What does it mean our God's a consuming fire? Not going to we can go to the textual criticism and go to the text, but let's extrapolate from that. What does that mean about God's nature? And so God is love, but he's also consuming fire. If he's holy, but he's also a judge. If he's righteous, but he also demands that we obey him, that we um, be holy because he's holy, then what? What does all that bring to the conversation? Do you know what I mean? I hope I'm not going too off track, but what all what does that bring to the conversation? I think that's exactly yeah. what Christians must bring to the conversation. And and in the best ways that we can, whether it's over Twitter or over coffee, we need to be sharing that truth with unbelievers. Like um, this is a cultural touch point. All the Christian apologetics uh, folks who said, well, everybody out there is a moral relativist, so you need to prove there's absolute morality, uh, strike that. Uh, most people now absolutely believe in absolute morality. But as you said, Parker, they believe that they ought to define the absolute morality, what is absolutely just, that's absolutely true and absolutely false, based on their emotions, based on their tragic backstories, their traumas, their feelings, and whatever they like based on what the scientists or the authorities say. Uh, we already believe in absolute morality. It's just a matter of who gets to define it. This is a question of moral authority. We believe God defines it, and they believe that the majority defines it, or I define it. Uh, this is an emphasis on authority, whether it's from the person or from God. I have a theory in all of this, which is that everyone is actually pretty aware of God's wrath resting on their sins, and they don't want to admit it. So, you know, you look through Romans 1, it says that they've suppressed the truth. You know, people all see the truth about God's existence and Romans 2 talks about everyone understands the existence of a absolute moral law, whether or not they've been given the actual law in scripture or not. I think everyone has an innate sense of God's existence as creator, but also as judge. And that's a really, really scary thing to face. And so I think it's a lot easier to point out other people's sins yeah, and point that out guy other over people's. There. Yeah, I need a scapegoat. So here's, here's that person over there. Send him into the wilderness. Or like the Jewish leader said, I'm not like that publican, you know? That's oh, right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So I think in, um, you, know, you know, this outrage culture that we're in, this cancel culture, whatever you want to call it, the mob justice, I think it is a modern form of people putting blood on the doorpost to keep away the angel of death because they feel that coming for them. And I think COVID especially has made people so aware of death and eternity. And it's something that we've all, we all just try to escape from it. It's one of the epistles that talks about how people that don't know Christ are held in slavery by their fear of death, uh, by the evil one. And so I think, you know, all of this, it, it 
if you take a step back from it for a minute and, and, and take a step back from, man, this is people attacking the church or attacking the gospel, I think it's actually a really great opportunity Amen. to share the gospel with people because, you know, this kind of stuff is exhausting. Like the perpetual outrage machine, like it breaks down at some point and people are left wondering, well, what about my sins? What if they come for me? What if they find out what I said to that person in the cafeteria? What if they find my old texts? What if they dig up all these old conversations and things that I did? I think people are living in a lot of fear of this happening to them. And I think it's a great time to share Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I'm lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I, I think that is what all of this is pointing to. The people are desperate for that rest for their soul that's only found in Christ, only obtained through the gospel. You know, I've been reading this book recently, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, and he talks a lot about this. And he just says, look, this is one of the greatest opportunities to preach the gospel that we've had in modern times, because now we've kind of moved beyond this. Like you said, Steve, we've moved beyond this relativism. I actually think 9-11 was the first uh, huge shift in our culture where we moved away from this you know, relative morality. That's when everyone was like, maybe there is such a thing as evil. <laughs> and we've seen it so, so many times with so many hot button things that happen in the news. It's like, yeah, evil is a real thing. Uh, but wait a second, I've got some evil in my heart. And what happens if that gets found out? It's fascinating when you think about it, actually. It's, um, it makes us just know how much gracious the Lord is, how much grace is really needed. As people say, we're in the age of grace, depending on who you talk to about end times, we're in the age of grace. And it's fascinating when you think about it. So that's why for me, even though it's just a book and people may say, why is all this hoopla over a book, but you do understand the bigger context of what's going on. You understand that, hey, it may be just a fictional book, but here's all the history that's going behind there. Here's what's happening. It's So it's not just this narrow one way of looking at this situation. It's many, many ways of looking at it and understanding why it happened. But like I said, I'm reading the book. It's it's fine. I mean, I, I don't want, I don't want to say I, I haven't finished reading it yet, but it's fine. It's, it doesn't have that. In my opinion, it doesn't have that. You know, I can call out, I will call out anything. I'll call it out. Okay. But I don't see what the critics are seeing because everything that the author did a really good job of trying to show a remorseful um, hero who participated in an atrocity. I remember things I've done that weren't right. I'm sure you guys can go, wow, let me go get my list back here. <laughs> I've done. And then you pull out this big book that makes this big boom on the floor of everything you've messed up with, you know? So that, those are my viewpoints about it. Well, that leads to our third big point here is how can Christians best understand uh, fiction in all of this? You know, at, at first, this issue is about the gospel and how we understand redemption in our nonfiction, in our real lives. But how do we then apply this view of sin and redemption and some of the false religions that people have about how you deal with sin in our history, uh, in the racism and the bigotry and even you know real genocides that went on in the past? How do we take these issues and explore them in fiction? And one thing that I did notice here, and we've already alluded to this a lot, is that it's not just the bad secular cancel culture that, that we're addressing here. I mean, Christians, uh, particularly if you've spent a lot of time in the American evangelical cultures, 
understand some of this perspective perfectly from another vantage. And what I mean is, as we've discussed frequently on the podcast and at Lorehaven, uh, there's a long and glorious tradition of Christians expecting fiction to set a good example. And by that, we mean we yes. want the clean read. I'm not opposing the clean read, especially if someone has legitimate uh, uh, triggers or, or sin temptations, stumbling blocks that will personally tempt them uh, if they read, you know, a steamy hand-holding moment or someone saying a bad word uh, or a portrayal of violence or something like that, uh, or even a false belief repeated in fiction that may not be challenged outright, but that the story itself may subvert, especially if it's a Christian author. Uh, a lot of Christian readers in the past, uh, and generally this has been older readers with certain expectations of fiction, uh, expect not to have these elements in the story. Uh, and publishers have doing their job because they are called to steward their resources. Like, I'm not blaming the publishers for this. I don't say, oh, this publisher's a legalist or anything. They're just giving their readers what they want. They're serving and they're responsible for their resources. So this is a reader issue that readers have expected fiction to set a good example. And then after all, I want to give my novel, give this favorite novel to my unsaved friend and then maybe they'll get saved. So not only do we need a lack of these bad things in the fiction, the bad words or the bad ideas, but we need an active gospel presentation. Uh, they need to have no doubt when they finish the book that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life. Uh, Jesus may not be named, but we at least need some kind of general, all-purpose, Christian-ish morality in the story. So that's what Christians have expected. But now increasingly, especially on, I would say, the fantasy side, uh, more Christian fans are getting a little bit more daring, I think mostly in appropriate ways. We're asking questions like, wait a minute, do we really want to show the world this way in our stories? Or is Christ more exalted when stories are a little more realistic about the nastiness in our history uh, or the bigotry that people harbor or the fact that we expect to get away with our sins and no one needs to pay the price? You know, are we in effect compromising the gospel by showing that the gospel only works in a world that has been pre-cleaned by someone else? the author hero who's getting rid of all the bad words and some of the more violent moments or some of the worst aspects of humanity in the story. Does this really help us to see Christ as magnificent, to portray Christ implicitly in the story as the hero who answers a groaning world, who is the only solution to a groaning world? So we're starting to know, okay, maybe our stories can be a little, I dare to say, edgier, just a little bit. I don't mean to titillate the reader, uh, or to you know, strike back against those you know, bad readers who were so legalistic that they didn't want bad words in the fiction. Like that's, that's the cheap version of that. But in order to magnify Christ, which is the purpose of the story, to show him as excellent, whether or not he's named in the story or Christianity is named in the story, stories can go in this direction. So more Christians are, are waking up to this, I think, and, and hopefully exploring this from a biblical perspective. But meanwhile, you have the reverse happening among some secular readers, where now some of the critics, maybe of this book, seem to be expecting the novel to teach. The novel should set a good example, which is not even uh, coherent because to teach, you have to also show the wrong answers. You know, the good example must also show the bad example. Don't do this. Don't do genocide, people. Don't do drugs. Uh, instead, you must feel remorse for that kind of thing. You must heal from that. You must repent. You must make restitution. And then for the Christian, you must put all your faith in Christ because only he can pay the eternal penalty for that evil you did. Folks don't seem to want to go there in the story. 
I'm, I'm left a little aghast at, at what the expectation is. Do we not then at all address terrible things like genocide or even racist attitudes and stories? Can we not confront those issues in our fiction? If so, we can't explore them in maybe one of the safest creative venues possible. Uh, we have to confront these issues only in public policy and nonfiction ways, and we know how well that turns out. If I may, this is tangent to what you're saying. In the romance industry, particularly during the 70s and the 80s, there was a huge plethora of what's called bodice rippers, you know, and bodice rippers were, as they say, bodice rippers, ripping clothes off. There was no such thing as consent. The hero could be the hero after he raped the girl and kidnapped her, did all these horrible things to her, and then something will happen to him and then they live happily ever after. And so over time period, people have, um, some people are like, this is just weird. Why would he rape her and then she'd be okay with it? But it happened, and I'm, I'm pretty sure real life is reflected in fiction all the time. I'm pretty sure some women met men who did harm them, and they eventually fell in love with them, and they forgave them, I guess. I don't know. I have never experienced it, so I don't know. But anyway, so on this tangent, what started to happen is that this thing called consent became very prominent in the 90s. Right. Romance started to change from bodice rippers and these, you know, kitchen, kitchen sink um, themes and, and stories and consent became an idea. But then what happened is that now everything is consent. Now, you know, the guy has to say, hey, can I kiss you? Like in the in a romance, like, can I kiss you? Because it just has to be consent, you know? And it kind of goes along with what you were saying. Now they're expecting all Christian fiction to show a certain type of thing. So you can't, like you say, you can't show it. If there's nothing wrong with it. If you can't show that, hey, it's wrong to commit genocide by having a guy commit genocide or who participate in this massacre and he's feeling some type of way. If you don't show it, then what's the point of having fiction? Why can't we explore these really interesting ideas in fiction? You would think that's, like you said, the safest place to explore some of these things. Because there are people who will read your fiction before they read the Bible. Okay. And, uh, I, I, and you know, Steve and Zach, I read everything. So I don't limit my reads to just clean reads. I read what interests me. And I've been very vocal about that just so people know, yeah, Parker reads a lot of different stuff. <laughs> so I'm not going to sit here and hide that. I think that's what happens too. You want to hide what you read, I guess, because Kindle makes it easy now. You don't have to know what I have on my Kindle. I can just, you don't know if I have 50 shades of gray on the there cover. or not. <laughs> yeah. You don't see the cover, you know. But um, going back to our, to our point there is that, you know, the whole point about using fiction to show various ideas, to bring about different ideologies, is it always safe? And that's something that Rebecca said. I think Rebecca said once, she said, is Christian fiction safe fiction? Oh, that's Re and Rebecca I, Luella I was, Miller at Speculative yeah, Faith. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I, I, was, I was going Luella about because I, I don't think the last name Luella, but uh is Christian fiction safe fiction? I would say no. Christian fiction should hit those realistic, those realistic um, topics like anything else. If you want to talk about genocide like in this book, talk about it. You don't glorify it, for goodness sakes. And that's what I'm saying. She didn't glorify it. In my opinion, she did not glorify this guy killing all these Native Americans. She did not glorify that, in my opinion. If someone else read that, then they read something I did not read, okay? In my own book, The Butterscotch Bride, it's a plantation romance. So it was my version of Gone with the Wind come from, coming from the enslaved point of view. But I didn't want to make it a really harsh book where we talk about the master raping the slaves. We knew that happened. I didn't want to make it a harsh um, 
tale because slavery is very depressing for me, extremely. When I was doing the research, I was getting even more depressed. And one morning I was researching really early in the morning. My husband was getting ready to go to work. My husband's Irish and German, right? And I looked at him after reading something really horrible and I said, I have to divorce you. <laughs> I can't be married <laughs> to you anymore. My ancestors will roll over in their graves. And he's like, yeah, okay. You know, <laughs> he just went on about his business, you know, but it was just, so depressing. So what I did, I did not whitewash it, but I did not focus on it because I wanted to show a different side of it. And some people who read it, they critiqued me on that saying, well, she didn't go too deep into the slavery. Well, then it becomes, does the author have the right to write what the he or she wants to write? Do I have to always write about slavery or can I write about dragons? You know, can I write about, you know, elixirs and goblins and and spaceships and stuff like that so that's also part of the conversation too is do we use fiction to tell our stories however those stories are tell can we write what we want to write without Mm. having to be censored about it so that's what these questions really bring to mind and do readers expect that or do they only want fiction that caters to their own narrow viewpoint yeah Uh, lewis's words uh, from the preface to the screw tape letters comes to mind here Uh, that there are two errors you can make about the devils, Lewis wrote. And I would apply that to not just the devils, that is demons or spiritual warfare, but to evils. The two errors are you can ignore them, you can pretend they're not real, uh, you can suppress the truth of these evils in unrighteousness. In other words, try to take maybe the worst kind of clean approach. Let's just not even go there in our fiction. Let's not even talk about it. If you talk about it, you're the problem. We're going to hush you up. But the other error is to focus so much on the evils at the exclusion of everything else, including the good and including uh, or excluding the good and excluding the possibility of redemption. Uh, We know the Christian who is so focused on spiritual warfare uh, and whether or not they believe in casting out demons or cleaning up particular places spiritually. You know, it's like they're living in their own little video game in their head. Uh, That's an issue. But then we cannot overcorrect from that and say, Uh, yeah, let's just, let's just ignore Satan. You know, he's, he's not a threat anymore. You know, Jesus has died. You don't have to worry about the devil. That's not how scripture responds to Satan, demons, or evil. And that's not how we should respond to it either. Amen. You know, I like this. Um, it's kind of like a poem, I guess it's more of just a list, but I've seen this go around over years and years and years. It's like, you think God can't use you or do you think you're too bad for God to forgive you? Um, and it's this whole list of Bible characters, starting with Noah got drunk. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob lied. Uh, Moses was a murderer and a stutterer. Uh, Gideon was afraid. Rahab was a prostitute. David was a murderer and an adulterer. Elijah was suicidal. Isaiah preached naked. I I don't think I know anyone that has done that. Um, (laughs) You know, John the Baptist ate bugs. Peter was a coward. Uh, Mary Magdalene was a prostitute and demon possessed, you know, and and on and on and on and on. And, and, And the Apostle Paul, you know, he was a tyrant. He would threw people in jail so they get murdered. So, you know, all of these people are in the Bible and all their stories are there on purpose so that we could see, so that we could have hope, right? That, that the Bible does not pull punches on the reality of human sin because the point of the Bible is not, look at all these people that are the heroes. You can be a hero too. The Bible is the story of God being the hero and rescuing villainous people from their villainy. And, and that is, you know, the best fiction does the same thing. It doesn't say like, Oh, you can be the hero just like this guy. It's like, no, here is a story that shows redemption or it shows rescue or it shows transformation in a way that 
should give you that hope, should give you, give you that sense that maybe there is a bigger power than me just trying to conform to culture. Maybe God has a power that is beyond the worst thing I've ever done or the, the bad things I keep doing or all my bad habits and regrets. Good Christian fiction doesn't, like you said, it doesn't whitewash things. It, it, it tells the truth, but it points to something greater than the sins of characters. It points to the possibility of transformation. And it might take different forms when there's dragons or spaceships. But that I that whole idea that no one is too far gone, that you know, that light can conquer the darkness, I think that is the most biblical and Christian idea. And it's a shocking idea, I think, for a lot of people. But it's what we all want to hear because we we all know the darkness within ourselves. It seems to me that there's two different kinds of propaganda here uh, that great stories would counter. Uh, I've been saying for at least a few weeks, because uh, we've been talking on, uh, on Lorehaven about uh, the way that Christians respond to secular stories. It seems to me that the, that the uh, uh, inferior, I would dare to say that, the, the, the less great Christian-made story of any genre uh, would say, here's a person who did a bad thing. Now, what will you do? gentle reader. Uh, the secular version of that kind of propagandistic story may be at its most extreme version, even worse, because while the Christian made story may say, here's a character who did a bad thing. Now, what will you do? Gentle reader. The secular story says, here's a character who never did a bad thing. Certainly not a thing like a racist attitude or something. We've got a bunch of people, as you said, Zach, as you said, Parker, like running around with this burden of their old chats or their own tweets or whatever, you know, there's the secular legalism there. No, we don't view those things as having expired. Uh, if they were sin then, then they're still, they're still sin now and only Christ can forgive that. Uh, but that person is not going to be able to get away with it just by, just by suppressing it, you know, suppressing the truth of who they are in unrighteousness. And our fiction cannot reflect that. Great fiction is going to go further. A great fiction is going to ask, oh, here, okay, here's a person who did a bad thing. Now, what will this person do? And yes, it's still instructive. It's still an example, but it's focused on the character. It's focused on his or her journey and their personality and the complexity of humanity, as you mentioned earlier, Parker. And a Christian-made story or even a really good secular story is going to point to some means of redemption, some standard outside that person's own self. Uh, for the Christian-made story, uh, whether it's a romance or a historical or fantasy or one or more, all of them put together, who knows? Uh, a Christian-made story is going to point to Christ one way or the other is the only solution. And I keep trying to think, wow, how could, you know, as an outsider, I'm looking at how could the romance writers of America fix this? You know, their, their, their debris is strewn everywhere. And, you know, Maybe somebody on their board or whatever can figure this out, but I'm looking at it and going, Christ, Christ is the only answer. And you cannot build on a foundation where people are uh, so afflicted by these contrary moral visions and their own trauma and their own expectation of wrath and morality. Like you, you cannot address that with a secular approach or even a moral libertarian approach. Well, everybody just, everybody just read whatever they want, you know, no rules, no standards whatsoever. Because then, like you mentioned, Parker, you go back to the bodice rippers and, you know, books that seem to be excusing even horrible, horrible assaults on God's image, like rape. Like, no, I would view those as a bad story. A bad story shows this to be good or just neutral. A good story needs to call things for what they are. So I'm glad we 
no longer have those kinds of stories. But you know, there's also the possibility of overcorrecting. You can't overcorrect for one kind of evil with another. Uh, the only corrective is Christ. The only corrective is the gospel. Amen. What I would add, just my final thoughts to the conversation. My my goal as a romance writer is to explore romance because I love that journey of togetherness that couples in many different ways. So many people within the Christian community, they do want to make sure that that romance is nice and clean and it doesn't show anything awkward or explicit. But real life does not reflect that. I would challenge any of our listeners to think about your own romances. Were they always narrow, street clean? Were you perhaps maybe a drug addict and someone came to you and rescued you from your drug addiction, this man or this woman who poured themselves into you and then you end up falling in love, okay? Were you maybe an atheist and this woman or this man did not stop pursuing you, did not stop answering your questions, did not ignore the questions that you had. Were you hurt and abused and someone came and helped with the love of God soothe those wounds of your heart? That's what the path of romance is. In this case, with At Love's Command, we have a man who is dealing with the aftermath of his actions, participating in the massacre. What can this woman's love do for him? Can he ever forgive himself? Will he always have this burden on his body? Those are some of the questions that are asked in At Love's Command. What are some of the questions you as a reader are asking for yourself? For those of you who are writers, what are you asking for yourself? So let's take that into consideration when we are analyzing books or critiquing books. Let's look at the deeper picture. Amen, Parker. It all goes back to that discernment, understanding the point of the story, understand why we were created as well as why great stories should be created. Uh, our purpose is to glorify God. Uh, our purpose uh, as sinners is to repent and put our trust in Christ and then allow his grace and his holiness to transform us and transform our expectations of stories like this. Where can folks find out more about what you do, uh, your show, your fiction? Uh, it's parkerjcole.com, but where else can folks uh, track your journey? They can track it all on parkerjcole.com. I'm also on my Facebook. If you want to follow me on Facebook, I'm pretty active there. And can I just make one disclaimer? Um, these are all my opinions. If I got it wrong, I'm okay with that. If you want to correct me, I'm okay with that too. I need to make these kind of things because people think, oh, this is what you, this is what you think is the law. No, it's just an opinion. So I just want to clarify that too. But I really appreciate you guys having me. I really do. Thanks for coming on. And that's standing policy at, at Fantastical Truth. Uh, please do correct, cajole, do not cancel, because we won't have any of that sort of nonsense. But you're welcome to issue a corrective or some kind of comment by emailing podcast at lorehaven.com. That's the catch-all email address. You can also find us, of course, at lorehaven.com slash podcast for episode 76. You'll get the show notes for this prolonged episode necessarily prolonged i am sure for such a big topic i'm sure this is not the last uh, exploration we'll have of that you'll find the feedback box there as well as being able to email podcast at lorehaven.com or look us up on the socials search for facebook and twitter for lorehaven and then you'll find us on instagram at lorehaven mag 
Well, let's go to our comm station real quick for a note from Janie, who wrote to us and replied to our interview with Lonnie Forbes. That was last episode 75. Janie wrote, quote, great interview, Lonnie. No one knows how they will respond in this situation until it's their life. We can aspire towards that goal, but you have reached it. And peace doesn't mean there's no fight left. You persevere and trust and ask and accept. God is using you, whatever the outcome. We love being part of your story through prayer, end quote. Well, that was really fun to see not only a fan of Lonnie's work, but a fan of Lonnie's life and the way that she is living out her faith through all of the challenges that she's gone through and really persevering towards. So that was such a great interview with her, Stephen. I uh, encourage you, our listener, to go check that out um, and, and be encouraged by how Lonnie is journeying through suffering with faith. Absolutely. That's just the kind of hard material uh, that Christians need to get into with our best stories. Uh, not only uh, the issues of sacrifice and blood and you know all of the stuff that she was exploring in her Aztec-inspired fantasy, uh, this is just the kind of book that goes back to history and looks at it, you know, portraying some very brutal realities, although in her case, you know, not history, but inspired by history. Uh, I think we need more stories like The Seventh Son and uh, others that she and many other fantastic authors will be creating. Meanwhile, whether or not you're a fan of romance or historical fiction or historical romance fiction or fantasy fiction, please evaluate these stories from a biblical perspective. Don't just come at them with expectations shaped by trauma or social pressures or social morality, stuff you just catch from the culture around us, but always bring God's word, God's morality, God's nature, which defines truth and sin to that story as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth 